Hello, welcome to Tales from the Albright, a podcast by the Scranton Public Library. My name is Alyssa, and I work in the reference department. I have my master's in archive management, which is a subsection of library and information science. Today, we are back with our new year of podcast episodes, which is very exciting. We are going to start with covering the first library staff's fashion. This is a program that Emily and I did in person in December, and we had such a good turnout, we decided to turn it into a podcast episode. So we are here with Emily. Hello, I'm Emily. Uh, I work at Library Express, um, which is a branch of the Scranton Public Library, and I have my master's in costume studies. So uh, I'll provide the fashion history, and Alyssa will provide the library history. Yes. (laughs) So I know we already had an episode on the history of the Albert Memorial Library. It was actually our very first episode, but I'll go over it briefly just so we have a baseline here for any new listeners or if anyone hasn't listened to those episodes recently. John J. Albright decided to donate his family's property at the intersection of Vine and Washington when his father, Joseph Albright, died. And I will be doing an episode on Joseph Albright next week so we can learn more about him. When he donated the land, his only stipulation was that the library must be called the Albright Memorial Library. So that is how we also got our name. Henry Carr was the first librarian. So that would be the director or CEO today. And he helped purchase the books and organize the library for its grand opening, which occurred on May 26th of 1893. The first library staff was Bess Haydenberg, Lulu James, Josephine Holly, Cora Decker, Emma Thompson, Myra Millett, Jesse Kiefer, and Anna Edwards. You can see photos of them and the slideshow that I will be posting to go along with this episode, as well as on our little sign that we have in the reference department telling you where to return books. So because we are focusing on the fashion and it's very visual, I'll also be posting images of the types of clothing on the slideshow as well. That'll be posted to Instagram and Facebook. So, Emily, do you want to tell us about the fashion? Absolutely. So, I found a really good quote in Harper's Bazaar um, from 1899 that I think really sums up this period of change and transformation that was the 1890s and connects it to the library staff. So it goes, quote, perhaps none of the professions open to women in recent years is more exciting in its demands upon the patience, the industry, and the steadiness of purpose of the woman who makes her chosen calling than that of the librarian. Uh, So as I just noted, the 1890s were a decade of extravagance and transformation that we now know as the Gilded Age. And it was situated within this environment of upper class economic prosperity, industrial growth and new social mores that the Albright Memorial Library opened uh, in 1893. And I really believe that the two images of the first library staff demonstrate that this age's spirit of independence through the emerging career of a librarian. So the profession of a librarian was situated within the idea of the new woman uh, that occupied the popular consciousness. This new woman was one who enjoyed sports such as bicycling and golf as much as intellectual pursuits 
and she sought employment for personal fulfillment and financial independence. Though corsetry remained in popular dress, elements such as the bustle, which uh, was a staple of fashionable dress in the previous decade, uh, was now far too obtrusive for an active woman. And it was here that a simplification of popular fashion emerged, consisting of two sensible separates, the shirtwaist and gourd skirt. And the shirtwaist was a ready-to-wear blouse inspired by the practicality of tailored menswear, often made in cotton or linen, uh, though silk options were also popular. Commonly seen in pale colors and paired with a contrasting dark skirt, I found a quote from Ladies Home Journal that uh, sums it up that, quote, the blouse is full, is draped, has a tucked or fancy front with stiff collars and cuffs, and always suggests a rather undressed getup, and that's from 1896. Uh, washable collars, cuffs, and ribbons were added by the wearer to the blouse, contributing to a sense of individuality. However, while there were variations in fabric to choose from for these elements, there was a strict uniformity in style. As Ladies Home Journal explained, quote, on those intended to be simple, there is a high, stiff linen collar turning over its entire depth, but not turning over in the sense of a turned down collar. It is really a very high, straight collar turning over on itself without altering the outline. The cuffs are deep, straight, and so made that they close best with links. On blouses made of cotton lawn, that is, those that are very simple, the turned down collar matching the material is preferred and the cuffs harmonize with it. A stiff butterfly tie of lawn matching the blouse is usually worn and is in very good taste." Unquote. In Scranton, uh, shirtwaists were available to purchase at dry goods stores such as The Fashion on Lackawanna Avenue and The Globe Warehouse on Wyoming Avenue, uh, both of which are closed now, uh, with prices ranging between 39 cents and $2.50 in 1893. The Scranton Republican uh, ran an advertisement from the Globe Warehouse in 1893 that stated, quote, no garment of modern design has taken such a strong hold on popular favor as the shirtwaists. It is all but indispensable, and as it carries with it that neatness and style which never fails to appeal to good tastes, it is probable that its present popularity will continue for many a day to come. The appeal of the garment was explained succinctly also in an 1899 advertisement for the Forsyth shirtwaist, stating, quote, one of the chief advantages of the shirtwaist is that it is suitable for so many functions. Besides being able to choose a waist from an almost endless assortment, one is assured of a perfect fit without tedious delays and many tryings on. Additionally, the advertisement made note of the rapid evolution of the garment during the decade and when one observes the photographs of the Albright's first library staff, this very shift can be found. Most noticeably, the sleeves on the staff's blouses are in the zigo or leg of mutton style, popular and at their most voluminous, during the first half of the decade, reaching its peak around 1895. This sleeve, which first appeared in fashion during the 1830s, was marked by the enormous upper half either seamed together near the elbow with a tightly fitted undersleeve or as a continuous piece from the full top to the tightly fitted wrist, the latter which can be seen on the library staff. As Ladies Home Journal explained in 1895, quote, the sleeve of the period must be large and flare out, not up, in a bouffant style and keep this appearance at all times, or its chic is lost forever. The leg of mutton sleeve is the universal shape now in style, unquote. 
So that's the sleeve that we see on Cora Decker, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then yeah. there's um, in the slides that are posted on libraries, Facebook, and the Instagram. The Instagram. Yeah. You could see an 1895 illustration from Vogue juxtaposed with um, a closer image of Cora um, that you could really see the similarities in the sleeves and then also the shirt waist, gore skirt, buckle, whole bow tie, whole nine yards. Yeah, and it would make sense because Cora was just a run-of-the-mill member of the Scranton Society because when she started working at the library she was 26 and she became the assistant librarian so she was second to Henry Carr in the order of seniority in the library and that meant that she would often travel with Henry and his wife Edith and maybe one or two other members of the library staff to American Library Association conferences around the country to visit different libraries she was frequently mentioned in the newspaper because she was the, one of the library's main contacts. Cora would provide them with the library news or the list of new book acquisitions. And she took over for Henry when he died of illness on May 21st of 1929. She would essentially run the library for about a year or so until Harold A. Wooster was hired as the head librarian of the Scranton Public Library in May of 1930. So Cora then went on to retire in 1942 after a career of 49 years. So it really shows how she was this modern working woman for the time. And as you were saying, with the fashion, she would need to be able to move to help retail books and travel yeah. and do all these different things with the library. Yeah, and seeing her, most of her colleagues are dressed similarly to her, and um, from your research, I think they all have fairly similar backgrounds, mm -hmm. um, but one that sticks out would then be Emma Thompson, yes. um, who has a very different background and is dressed um, to the nines <laughs> in these <laughs> photographs, and you know, it really shows that in her dress that fashion in the 1890s was not just composed of utilitarian separates. High fashion was at its most extravagant, with over-the-top embellishments perfected by Paris couturiers complementing the distinctive hourglass silhouette created by the large gigot sleeves, tight corseted waist, and conical shaped skirt. Yeah, and as you mentioned, she was from an incredibly wealthy family. Emma Thompson's father was Crandall W. Thompson, who was a very prominent member of Scranton. Crandall was involved in real estate, brick manufacturing, and politics. So he would lead the family to construct the third house in the Greenridge section of Scranton. When Emma was 43, the library opened, and her career would lead her to working in the reading room in the reference department here at the Albright Memorial Library. And then she would also become one of the main librarians that worked at the Greenridge Library. We still aren't sure how that relationship worked. We know that the Albright Memorial Library used Greenridge as kind of a meeting point for the people who had library cards here to take books out of Greenridge since it wasn't part of our library system yet. It wasn't a branch or anything like that. It just kind of was, they sent books there and people from Greenridge could pick them up. Most of what we know about Emma comes from an extensive obituary that was published in the Scranton Tribune on March 17th of 1989 because she was the first member of the library staff to pass away and it hit the library community very hard. Mm -hmm. um, 
In her obituary, it stated that since the opening of this institution, Miss Thompson has been one of its most valued attendants. Her culture and her eagerness to assist the student and the ready who frequented the library gained not only the respect and appreciation of patrons, but their warm friendship. And she was regarded so much that E.B. Sturgis, who was one of the founding members of the Greenridge Library, donated a crayon portrait of her to the library after her death. And in a recent article that I was looking into, it noted that like Henry Carr was one of her pallbearers, so she was very highly respected mm. from a very prominent family and kind of was the epitome of a more upper-class woman in Scranton. Yeah, absolutely. And that background um, would absolutely, or just perhaps contribute uh, to her choosing to be photographed in such an ensemble. There is a illustration of a lavish afternoon dress from the February 1895 issue of Vogue uh, with sleeves of silk brown stripes alternating with uh, stripes showing some color of the fancy silk, um, which is how it was described. And um, this shares a striking uh, resemblance to Emma's outfit. And speaking of Emma, did was the portrait that was that ever found or is that another mystery to look that's, into <laughs> as of right now it's a mystery <laughs> Maybe that's so something. one day hopefully it'll, it'll pop up yeah. somewhere <laughs> yeah that's one of the mysteries that we have here at the library uh-huh. <laughs> just one of the ever-growing ones yes that we would love to know so if you know yeah please, <laughs> if you know please where email Ellen, me <laughs> <right>. <laughs> or call the library yeah. with any tips yeah So that covers the entire presentation that we gave. Was there anything else that you wanted to add about the area or the fashion trends of the time? Yeah, I would just say that as the 20th century approached, the shirtwaist was solidified as the symbol for the active everyday women. And that's that's who the first staff of the Albright Memorial Library were. And um, you could see it, uh, whether in Charles Dana Gibson's The Gibson Girl, uh, which represented the feminine ideal of the new century. You know, beautiful, athletic, talented, and confident. And you could see her dressed just the same as the library staff. Or you could even look to portraiture, such as John Singer Sargent's 1897 work, Mr. and Mrs. Ian Phelps Stokes, where upper-class socialite Edith Minturn Phelps Stokes would have customarily been painted in fine evening wear, passively situated in a grand room. However, here she is dressed in a shirtwaist, white pique skirt, and blue sarge jacket, with rosy cheeks as if she just came in from a brisk walk, as her husband stands in the background in place of the family Great Dane. So, situated within the company of college students and emerging professionals, suffragettes and socialites, Uh, The fashion of the first library staff of the Albright Memorial Library attests to the widespread impact of the style of the Gilded Age, embodying the spirit of the new independent American woman. It's always always interesting to see how fashion trends correlate to what's going on in society and what people are doing. Yep, it's my favorite thing to analyze. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll see, you know, what... What is it now? 130 years? What people are saying about our fashion here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's gotten so varied over the years, too. Mm -hmm. Where some people will exclusively just wear dresses because that's what fits them and what they feel most comfortable in. Where other people are just exclusively 
in pants always. Absolutely. And it's ever changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely more variation today. And, you know, can it really be pinned down into one thing? But, you know, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. <laughs> if you have any questions, comments, or anything at all, please email me at aloney at albright.org. That is A-L-O-N-E-Y at albright.org. You can also call the library at 570-348-3000. Or you can stop in and ask to talk to any one of us, and we'll be sure to help and take your comments into consideration for future episodes. Thank you. Thanks so much.